morning again, and like I uh, said earlier, my name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Hiawatha. Right now, we are in a sermon series in Old Testament book of the Bible, the book of Zechariah. And maybe you have never heard of this book or, or of this character. It's uh, the second to last book of the Old Testament, so just a few pages before Jesus uh, shows up in the New Testament, in the Gospels. Um, and Zechariah is an Old Testament book written some 500 years before Jesus. And it's a prophetic book, and it's written, the, the setting is written uh, as God's people, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, are returning from being in exile. So some of you might be wondering, why, why is this for us? You just described it as a book written to people 2,500 years ago on the other side of the world. And so that's a great question, and it really doesn't, at first glance, seem like Zechariah might be applicable for us. Maybe some of you have heard uh, Zechariah preached on outside of, of Hiawatha or, or taught on, but most people probably haven't. And so it's a great question to ask, how can a book written so long ago to a different group of people be for us as well? And the answer to that is that the Bible is one story. It, it's based, uh, sorry, wrong, wrong line there. The Bible is one story, and it's written in multiple genres over a thousand years on three different continents by over 40 different authors, yet all telling the same story, the same story of God's love for us and his plan of redemption and salvation. And so when uh, a few years ago, I was actually an elementary school teacher, and uh, a book came out called The Invention of Hugo Cabaret, and in it, uh, well, it won a lot of awards. There's a lot of buzz around it. It was very popular. And one of the reasons, besides it just being a, a good piece of literature, was that uh, it, it told a story in two different ways. And so it was a really great story in general. And then there would be, it's a very thick book, actually. There would be dozens and dozens of pages of just drawings. And so the author was telling a story through two different means. Same story, but two different ways. Through words and then through pictures, and in a way that a lot of children's literature uh, never does. And so it was a really cool and powerful way of telling a story for, for both uh, visual learners as well as people who like really good writing. Maybe you've also read a book that does something similar. Maybe you're reading a story, and in it, the author communicates the story or helps move the story along or tells it from different angles by adding lots of poetry. Or maybe part of the book is... Uh, letters written back and forth to some of the characters or things, something like, something like that. Similarly, the, the beauty and the power of the Bible is that it's not just telling uh, one story through two different ways, like the invention of Hugo Cabaret is, but it's actually telling the same story through, through many different genres. In fact, the Bible is written in, in many genres, including a story or narrative, there's poetry, there's history, there's letters, Apocrypha, wisdom, biography, in our case today with uh, Zechariah, prophecy. So the Bible is so much greater than, than this book or other pieces of literature uh, that try to do creative storytelling because the Bible is written in many different genres with many different authors over the period of a thousand years, all telling the same story from many different angles of God's love for us and his rescue plan that, that, that comes through Jesus Christ. And the way that that can happen 
is because the Holy Spirit's behind it. Christians believe that all the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So if it was just Moses and Matthew and Zechariah and John, all these random people writing stories, if that's all it was, we couldn't really say that what Zechariah is saying actually is pointing ahead to Jesus or is applicable for us today, or Moses, or even something like Matthew or John, maybe. But if the Holy Spirit is behind it, the Holy Spirit has inspired this entire book, even when Moses and, and Samuel and some of the prophets like Isaiah and Zechariah and uh, other books of the Bible, even when they didn't fully understand what their words would mean or the fulfillment of their words, uh, God can still be behind it all. And that's why this actually is one story. So that's the reason why Zechariah is not just for Israelites returning to Israel in 520 BC. That's why it also can be for us today. So God has a word for us today. He wants us to read Zechariah, and he wants us to see his character in Zechariah 10, and he also wants us to see his plan of salvation, restoration, protection, and salvation that starts in Zechariah 10, but gets fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Uh, earlier, Chris has, the other pastor, has described Zechariah in this way, so thought I'd say this again to kind of give us a good example or summary of what this whole book is about, which will help us as we uh, jump in and read uh, chapter 10 today. So what is Zechariah? Essentially, it's a collection of apocalyptic visions and prophetic oracles about Jesus Christ and other New Testament realities from the vantage point of Israel's return from Babylonian exile in 520 B.C. And that's what we're going to see today. We're going to see uh, in chapter 10 a prophecy that points ahead to God's salvation and his redemption that will come ultimately through the good shepherd, the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. All right, so let's read through uh, Zechariah 10. Uh, part of it is in your handout. It was a little too long to print it all, but part of it's in your handout, and it'll all be on screen if you want to follow along. Zechariah 10. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain, from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock and the house of Judah and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back, because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall re remember me. And with their children they shall live and return. 
I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea, and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. So what we have been doing in, in most of these uh, sermons, because uh, Zechariah is so hard to understand and written in kind of this uh, oracle or prophetic type language, we usually summarize the chapter, the passage that we're going to preach on, and that kind of helps us get our bearings and understand where we're going to go. So essentially, Zechariah 10 is God reminding his people to trust in him and his promises, and he's doing that in contrast with two opposites of that. And so he's saying, this is who I am, these are the promises I've given you, trust in me, and I'm much different than these false gods that are surrounding you and that you've, you're tempted to believe and that you have followed in the past, and I am different than these false leaders, these false shepherds, these, these evil, uh, greedy leaders that are actually hurting you rather than taking care of you like uh, leaders or shepherds should be doing. So that's essentially what's going on in Zechariah 10. So the beginning of Zechariah 10 starts off uh, with Zechariah reminding his people to trust in God. So if you are here last week, the end of chapter 9, God promises as he's bringing his people back from exile into the land that he gave them, into the land of Israel, he's promising them uh, prosperity. He's promising them that there's going to be great harvests of both grain and bread as well as vines and wine. And so the very first verse starts by Zechariah reminding God's people, remember what God promised you. Now as you're coming back into the land, you're no longer enslaved and impressed in, in, in Babylon. Remember what God has promised you. And he starts out by saying, ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain from the Lord who makes the storm clouds. And he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in his field. So this, this uh, nation, this group of people, they need crops to grow in order to survive, right? Especially being an uh, agrarian-type culture, they need crops to grow so that they have grain and so that they have wine, so that they have food and drink. So as they're returning to this land, this land that they haven't been in for years and years and years, they realize in order to survive, we need to start planting crops. We need our crops to grow. We need rain clouds to come. And so as they're returning... They're being tempted because all the other surrounding nations worship false gods. And one of those false gods is uh, the god Baal. B-A-A-L is how you uh, spell his name. You probably heard of him. One of the, one of the great uh, enemies of God's people. One of the great false gods. One of the great idols. Uh, great just meaning popular. We, we, we see a lot um, in this ancient time. And so they, uh, God's people worship this god throughout their history. This, this false god. And uh, as they're kind of returning to the land now, they have a choice. Are we going to trust God Almighty, the God that just rescued us from exile and oppression, the God who's bringing us back, the God who's going to restore us as a nation? Because he's promising uh, that we're going to have crops. He's promising that he's going to bring storm clouds and that uh, we're going to have grain and that we're going to have wine. Or are we going to turn back and, and try to offer sacrifices to these, to these other idols, these, these false gods that all of our neighbors are worshiping? All of our neighbors are saying, well, if you want your crops to grow, you've got to 
offer a sacrifice to Baal. And if your crops aren't growing, if there is no rain, you're angering this God. So right off the bat, Zechariah is warning and reminding his people, trust God. Trust his promises. He's the God that's graciously bringing you back. And you're going to be tempted to return to your old ways. So will they turn back to another false God? Or will they trust the Lord and his promises? And right away, Zechariah, verse 2, he reminds the people that they're not just choosing between two equal gods. It's not like Baal's a real God and he's powerful and the God of the Bible or Yahweh or the Lord, he's also really powerful and kind of just, you know, it's like we have two candidates or two employees that we could hire, two companies that we could buy irrigation systems from and they're both kind of equal. Zechariah says that's not the case. Guys, remember, remember who our God is and remember the, the, the impotence and the powerlessness of these false gods that all the other nations are serving. So it's not like God and these false gods are kind of like equal in power and kind of just duking it out. And whichever one is, is stronger and brings greater rain clouds and brings a bigger crop and harvest, well, that's the God that we should worship. That's not the case. Right away, Zachariah reminds them that there is no contest. If it were a boxing match, the Lord would defeat Baal even before the match began. Zechariah reminds his people of the impotence and incapability of these pieces of stone, these hollow and powerless statues, to bring about anything. He describes it like this. He says, For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners, they see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Again, if this is, if this is not just for 6th century B.C. Israelites, but also for us, and God wants us to hear these words, we realize we face similar situations in our lives. Right? Often we're tempted to go to the local park and worship a big statue. Not quite, right? We don't, we don't worship false idols like that, but we still have very similar situations. Like Israel here, God has given us many promises, especially through the gospel, yet we're tempted often to not believe in them. Or when things are going good, of course I can believe in God's promises of, of eternal life and his love and his protection and provision and care for us. But when things start to get really tough, like they are for the Israelites right now, it's very tempting for us to not look to God's promises, but to start to look to false and, and empty and powerless things to bring about true satisfaction or pleasure or, uh, or comfort or healing or peace or whatever we might be looking for. So instead of remembering God's promise and turning to God's promises, especially the ones that come through the gospel, we're tempted to run to things that are hollow. It will only last for a little bit. Things like alcohol or food or shopping or entertainment. Or another way this has played out in my life recently uh, is we were worshiping. A few weeks ago, we were singing the song Mighty to Save. Some of you might know that song. And as we were singing that song, the Spirit was convicting me of doing this exact same thing, of, of not believing one of God's greatest and truest promises in the gospel. And the lyrics of that song, if you know that song, have, have phrases like, God's the author of salvation, and that our God is mighty to save. And I was realizing, as it, the Spirit was convicting me of this, this promise that, that God has given us in the gospel, that God is mighty to save, that he's not powerless to save people who are lost and people that are far from him, but that he can, that he is that mighty, and that he is the author of salvation. 
So the way it was playing out in my life is that my wife and I have just recently bought a house just a few uh, blocks north of here. And as we're meeting many of our neighbors, which has been fantastic, we're realizing just how far so many of them are from God. And very discouraging, like, great to meet you, really excited to build a relationship with you, and you are very, very far from God. So kind of bittersweet, very exciting, as well as uh, in my heart, I was, I was not trusting God's promises. I was thinking that, Spencer, in order for these people who are far from God to ever believe the gospel or ever to get close to God, you better really up your game. You better be really persuasive. You better be a really great neighbor. So just like the Israelites, I was tempted to put all my truth, all my eggs in the, in the basket of, of myself, which is hollow and powerless, rather than trusting God's promise. And so as we're singing Mighty to Save, the Spirit's just reminding me, believe that. Really believe that I am mighty to save. Really believe that I am the author of salvation and that I do want your neighbor. I love your neighbors more than you do, Spencer. I want, I want them to meet me more, more than you do. So stop thinking that just because it seems hard that, them, that my promises are void and, and that it's all about you. I was forgetting God's promises in the gospel and instead turning to something false and powerless. My own knowledge or my own good works or great strategy or, or missional living. So out of this reminder of, God, of, of uh, Zechariah reminding Israel to trust in God's promise and his faithfulness, we get this really strong warning against evil, unfaithful shepherds, or leaders of God's people. So kind of like Peter said, the Bible uses the word shepherds to, to symbolize uh, leaders very often in the Bible. So whenever you see shepherds, often think just leaders, and then people that are being led by the shepherds are the sheep. So, uh, But here in, in verse 3, we see both of these words used, leader and shepherd. So we get this strong warning from God against these evil and unfaithful Shepherds of God's people. Starting in verse 2, The people wander like sheep and they are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger, so this is God speaking now, My anger is hot against the shepherds and I will punish the leaders. So in Zechariah 10, it starts off with this great contrast between a God who is faithful and perfect and loving and caring and providing, a great leader, a perfect leader, and with these uh, false leaders, false gods that are powerless to help and to protect and to provide, as well as these false leaders, these false shepherds that are not imaging God well as leader, but rather are actually hurting the people. And to be clear, these leaders, they're not just kind of like in their private life, turning away from God and sinning, but rather in their sin, these leaders, these shepherds, are actually pulling God's people away from God, towards these idols, towards unfaithfulness, towards mistrust, in God. Throughout the Bible, God calls out leaders who are abusing their powers all over the place, whether it's leaders in the Old Testament, whether it's the kings, whether it's the judges, or whether it's lots of the prophets who are calling out these, these false shepherds, these, these people who are uh, misusing their power, abusing their authority, and hurting God's people rather than reflecting God in his leadership well, whether it's in I mean, it's all over the place. Ezekiel 34 is a really powerful passage where God gets really clear that he's very much against this type of uh, 
hurtful leadership. And God, he, he's not just against this type of like self-glorifying, selfish, prideful leadership, not just because it hurts people, which he does, and that is partly why he is against it, but it also, it defames his character. So if God speaks about himself as being the ultimate shepherd or the ultimate leader, the ultimate authority, but then all the people practically that are our leaders are abusing that, it gives a false image of who he is, his character, and his leadership. But even though we see it here in Zechariah 10, it's all over the Old Testament as well, lots and lots of strong warnings against false leadership, human sinfulness and our propensity to abuse power and leadership continues, continues on and on and on throughout this story, and even under this veil of godliness and faithfulness and righteousness. So if you remember during Jesus' ministry, some of his biggest opponents are religious rulers. They're people that are leaders among the Jewish people, and it's kind of veiled in this, well, we're super godly, we're super righteous, look at us. But there's some of Jesus' biggest enemies, religious rulers who weren't imaging God in their leadership, but rather burying people under a mountain of laws without using their authority and strength to empower, help, or serve those whom God had given to them. So the Pharisees are one group of this people. So Jesus calls them out. He, he, when he shows up on the scene and he begins his ministry, he sees these Pharisees, this group of people that are acting like false shepherds. They are not helping but rather are just adding to the burden of the people that God has entrusted to them. And Jesus calls them out for this. In Matthew 23, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So just think, they, they sit in judgment. They have judgment over you. So do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So as Jesus is publicly and really harshly calling out these religious rulers, he's also declaring to people that are watching, God's not like this. These guys are supposed to image God and how they're leading you, but they're not. They're doing a horrible job. And let me be very clear, people who are watching, our God is not like that. He does not lead us like that. He does not place heavy burdens onto us, hard to bear, laying on our shoulders, yet sits back, not even willing to lift a finger to help us. But God's actually the opposite of that. And it's partly true what these Pharisees, what these religious rulers are doing to the people is partly true. We do have a huge burden. We do have a huge demand on us. Jesus himself taught this. He said, you must be perfect, just as my heavenly Father is perfect. But we can't, right? We're sinful. We've done sin. Sin is in our nature, wrapped around our DNA. But unlike the leaders in Zechariah 10 and the leaders here that Jesus is fighting against, the Pharisees, God provides a way out. He doesn't just apply a heavy burden or say, you guys suck. You're horrible. You have so much sin. He doesn't just stop there like these other leaders that we see. But God provides a way out. He does lift his finger. He does offer to help and to empower. He uses his power to help and to empower those he loves, not to crush them. He sends his son to live the perfect life that we can never live and then offers us Christ's perfection. Jesus' sinlessness 
is given to us if we just trust in him. God promises us and the people in Zechariah 10 that he will bring a true and better shepherd. So even though they've, they've been oppressed, they've been slaves in, in Babylon and their, their own people, their own rulers are also shepherding them poorly, that are being greedy, that are taking advantage of them, that are hurting them. God promises in Zechariah 10 that he will send a true and better shepherd. So amidst these harmful, greedy, evil shepherds, God promises a true and better one that will come from him, that will come under his name and with his own power. But for many of us, that's just not our reality, right? Whether it's some, whether it's happening right now or whether it's just been in our past, we have had people in authority. We have leaders, have had leaders over us or do right now that aren't like that, that aren't Christ-like, that aren't godly, ones that have used us and abused us, whether it's to, to make their name more popular, whether it was to climb the, the, the ladder in a business, whether it was to make themselves look good, and all of us can probably name that, whether it's a coach, whether it's a teacher, a parent, maybe even a leader within a church. But God wants you to know today, through Zechariah 10 and through the gospel, God wants you to know he's not like that. He's not like those leaders. He's angry against those leaders. His anger burns hot against people who are entrusted by him to take care of his flock and who abuse that. And not only is he angry against it, but he promises to judge it. And he tells us that he's going to send us eventually and ultimately a better shepherd who will never do that, who will care for, protect, and provide for us through his son, Jesus Christ. In fact, when Jesus shows up on the scene, one of the titles that he gives himself is the good shepherd. In John 10, Jesus shows up and he's teaching and he says that I am the good shepherd. And not only does he say, I'm the fulfillment of Zechariah 10, and I'm the fulfillment of, of, of godly leadership, and I'm going to succeed where all these other leaders have hurt you and not succeed. But he also explains how he's going to lead, how he's going to protect and provide and care for us. So Jesus in John 10 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So Jesus contrasts himself with a hired hand. He says, a hired hand who's kind of acting like a shepherd, he'll do his job, but once there's danger, once there's conflict, once it's going to cost him something, he's out of there. When a wolf shows up, he's not going to protect them. But he's out of there because he doesn't care. He doesn't have a, a vested interest in those sheep. But in contrast, Jesus says he does because we are his. He says we are his sheep. And because of his love for us, because we're his creation, he will protect us from all of our enemies, even if that means laying down his own life. He continues, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, 
but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it back up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus defines what true leadership is, what, what true shepherding looks like. It's giving up oneself in order that another may truly live. In their book on leadership, Eric Geiger and Kevin Peck write, true uh, leaders are servants who die to themselves so that others may flourish. True leaders go forth, not for themselves, but for others. Sounds a lot like Jesus, right? Sounds a lot like him and his ministry, and especially like the cross. And not only do we have a good shepherd, a perfect shepherd, the chief shepherd, the greatest shepherd in Jesus, which is great and would be enough, but he chooses to give his church shepherds as well, underneath his care, to give each church pastors and overseers and all different kinds of leaders to give things that he offers as well through his leadership, protection, provision, care, service, love, all of these to reflect him. So unlike the leaders, the shepherds in Zechariah 10, Jesus is better than that and doesn't do that and now calls within his church men and women to lead his church to reflect his type of servant leadership. Ephesians 4, we see this great picture of Jesus gifting his church, gifting his body, other leaders, other shepherds in order to care for his flock. Ephesians 4, speaking of Jesus, says, And he and Jesus gave the church apostles, the prophets, evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. So we don't really have time to unpack all those different things, but essentially just here, and God and Jesus gave his church all different kinds of leaders, teachers, preachers, evangelists, people who are shepherding and caring for and taking care of people within the church. And listen, why? Why did Jesus give the church other shepherds, under shepherds that are underneath his leadership? Verse 12, he gave these leaders to the church, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful, deceitful schemes. Hiawatha Church, God has given us graciously and purposefully and intentionally, he's given us leaders. He's empowered and called many people within our church to lead, to take care of, to exercise love and care and protection and authority over us. He's given us pastors and overseers. He's given us deacons, community group leaders, people that lead our ministries here within our church, and many more. And their work, their job, is to mirror Jesus' leadership, to care for those that God has placed under them for a time. And even if you're not in leadership right now, God wants you to know this. He wants you to know that part of his care for you is to give you uh, leaders within your church. And he's going to care and provide and protect you through those people. He wants us to see how it's a gracious thing, how it's a healthy thing, how it's a good thing for his church. And it's his plan. So an example might be if you show up at community group this week and your leader offers hospitality welcomes you into his or her home, 
shares a tree with you, opens up the Bible with you, maybe teaches you a little bit, and then spends some time praying with you. In that, we see an example of, of Jesus' leadership who welcomes us to himself, who shows us hospitality, who, who teaches us the truth, who intercedes and prays over us. I notice too here in, in uh, Ephesians 4 that he doesn't say leaders are called to do all the work, nor is he saying that, uh, nor is Jesus saying that the work uh, done by leaders is the only important work. But rather, Jesus calls his leaders to do two things, to image his leadership by, by doing these two things, to s- equip the saints for the work of the ministry, so saints just means other cr- Christians, and to help people mature and grow in their Christ-likeness. So that's the job of a leader. That's what leaders are called to do, to equip the saints, to equip other brothers and sisters in Christ to do the ministry, right? Again, it's not leaders, leaders do the ministry and everyone else just kind of like stands back and cheers or, or funds it or prays for them. But rather the job of leaders is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry and to help those people that God has given them leadership over to grow and to mature in the gospel, to become more like Christ. So whether you're teaching the six-year-olds downstairs about Jesus, whether you're leading a community group, or whether you're a, a deacon or an elder, your job is to help equip other believers to do ministry and to help them mature and to grow in Christ-likeness. Our job, if we are called to be leaders, whatever, whatever type of leadership it might be, we're called to build up the church, to strengthen the church in love and in unity, to serve each other, to teach the gospel, and to help each other apply it in our own lives, and to share the gospel with a world that is perishing. Leaders, just for a moment, let me, let me speak to you specifically. If you here today are a leader at Hiawatha Church or a leader at a different church, let me speak to you for just a second. God has entrusted you with his people. Your work is incredibly meaningful, and it images Jesus in his leadership. It has eternal significance. You might be building a great company. You might be cr- climbing the corporate ladder. You might be building a great brand for yourself or, or building a great 401k or whatever it might be. But being a leader in Christ church has eternal and, and significant uh, consequences and benefits. So leaders of, of, of God's church see that. Don't see your leadership as just a burden, something that just zaps your time and your energy and your money and your resources, but rather see it for what it truly is. Christian leadership is investing in the eternal souls of God's children. Again, Geiger and Peck comment on leadership in the church. They say, No other gathering of people has a greater mission, a greater promise, or a greater reward than the church. No organization or opportunity offers what Jesus offers us. He promises us that the cost of work in his kingdom will be worth it. Not only do we receive blessing and rewards, but above all that, he is our ultimate reward. As everything is lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. I want the church, God wants us to value leadership. It's a good, healthy, and gracious gift that God has given us. It's a high calling, so pray for your leaders. Pray for your, your pastors and your overseers. Pray for your community group leaders, the, the people that lead the ministries you volunteer in, the people that lead the ministries that take care of our youth 
and our kids. Pray for your leaders. Pray that they'd be close to Jesus and that their leadership would reflect Christ's leadership. And consider, consider leadership yourself. If you've been around Hiawatha for a while, you know that we, we highly value leadership development. We really believe that Ephesians 4 passage that talks about church, especially leaders, your job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So our, our job as leaders, especially as overseers and pastors, we want to equip our people for whatever God is calling them. And so we want to help develop our people. We, we want to pour into our people and help uh, train up leaders. And so we've, we talk about this a lot, but just to kind of remind us again, we have uh, church-based training here at Hiawatha. We definitely send our people out to schools and seminaries and other classes and things like that, but we highly value training that happens within the context of a local church, that happens with pastors alongside your brothers and sisters in Christ here at your local church. And so we offer this a lot. And so we offer classes, many different types of theological classes that most of them happen throughout the school year. We also offer internships, and we just want you to know that we want to build into you. If you feel like God is calling you to become a leader or to, to lead more, to become a greater leader, we want to help you get there by God's grace. We want to pour into you. We want to help uh, figure out what God's maybe calling you to, figure out what your spiritual gifts are, give you opportunities to lead and to try stuff and to fail and learn from that and grow and uh, get coaching and mentoring, lots of different things like that. So just know that we do offer lots of this kind of stuff. If, if you want to talk through details, we'd love to talk uh, details with you. But just know whether uh, you want to plant a church or be a global missionary someday, or whether you just want to become a better servant, a better deacon, a better community group leader, a better teacher of children here at Hiawatha, we'd love to help you, whether it's informally or whether it's through something like HLI or our Hiawatha Leadership Institute, we'd love to help you with this, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry so that more and more people can grow in their Christ-likeness, more and more people can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Zechariah 10, it ends by contrasting the false gods and the unfaithful leaders. So you maybe, maybe have noticed Zechariah 10 starts off by having a few verses on false gods, a few verses on false leaders, and then many verses on God and what God's going to do. And now he is a true and faithful and powerful leader for God's people. Just look at, I just took some of the verses here, not even all of them, but just look at all these different things that God will do. So in contrast to these powerless, impotent, worthless gods that kind of promise, hey, We'll bring rain. We'll help your crops to grow. And in contrast to these false leaders, these leaders that are using God's people for their own advantage but are not really leading or shepherding them well, in contrast to them, God speaks and he says, look what I'm going to do. I'm not powerless. I'm not impotent. I'm not greedy. I'm not selfish. But I love you and I care for you. And this is what I'm going to do. He says things like, I will strengthen. I will save you. I will bring them back. I have compassion. I will answer them. I will whistle for them like a shepherd whistles for his sheep and gather them close to me. I have redeemed them. I will bring them, and I will bring them home. God says these things to us. And what's also really great about this, maybe some of you noticed what wasn't there. 
Zechariah 10 is not ultimately saying, follow the covenant, follow the law, or else. Back to Babylon. Which you're probably noticing as we've been going through Zechariah, Zechariah is is in some ways reading much more like the New Covenant, much more like the New Testament. It's not like the Old Covenant, like the law that says, if you follow these rules, you'll get blessings. If you don't follow these rules, you're going to get cursings. Or uh, kind of follow the covenant or else. But rather, we're seeing lots more promises in Zechariah. Look at Zechariah 10. There is no, I'm sending you back to Babylon if you worship Baal one more time. There's a warning against it, a strong warning against it. But look at all this grace. Look at God's power to step in and to say, I'm going to do this. And thankfully, it wasn't a follow the covenant, follow this promise, don't break the law ever again or else, because then we'd be screwed, right? Then the Messiah wouldn't have come because we know that Israel just fell back into similar sins. We know when Jesus shows up, the nation of Israel is not perfect. They're actually under new rule. It's not the Babylonians anymore. It's, it's now the Romans. So this is such good news for us that this is not a new law, but rather this is a promise of a new covenant. This is a promise of God stepping in and doing it all himself because he knows that we couldn't do it by ourselves. This is good news because the burden is heavy on our shoulders, but God is lifting a finger, unlike the Pharisees. He is stepping in and helping out. He's sending his son to come and live the perfect life that we never could and die the death that we deserve so that this type of salvation can come. And how will this happen? Well, for the the first initial hearers of this, they heard this promise. And they probably wondered, is this going to happen as we're returning to Israel? Or is this kind of a future event? They're not really quite sure. But but us as the church on this side of the cross, we know how all of this happens. We know that this doesn't happen through the law. But it rather happens through Jesus Christ, through the great shepherd, through this ultimate shepherd that will lead God's people and reflect God's leadership in ways that kings and false shepherds we see in Zechariah 10 could never do. Here's just a few ways. I mean, as we're probably reading through Zechariah 10, a lot of you are probably thinking, wow, that sounds a lot like Jesus. That sounds a lot like Jesus. Jesus did that. Jesus is called this. Jesus saved us this way. Jesus redeemed us. So just a few ways, Zechariah 10, and the salvation and the redemption that God promises a few ways that these point ahead to Jesus. I just picked six here. You'll probably reread chapter 10 and, and find even more. But Jesus is the true cornerstone. Acts 4 in Ephesians 2 says, Jesus is the one who will go to battle for us and win our war, just like the good shepherd who fights our enemies, who doesn't just say, oh, that's a wolf, I'm out of here, but rather lays down his life for his sheep. And in that way, destroys our enemies, and saves our souls. It's in Jesus, not in the law, not being in Israel, but it's in Jesus, in Christ now, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Jesus is the one who has redeemed us, Galatians 3.13 says. By laying his life down for his sheep, that's how Jesus saved us. 2 Timothy 1.9. And one day, the way that God's going to bring us back to himself and bring us back to our home, our ultimate home, our eternal home, that's going to come through Jesus Christ as well. John 14. 
So that is how restoration and salvation will come. That's how it's going to come, through the great shepherd. Elise Fitzpatrick writes, church leaders come and go, but Jesus, through his indestructible life and permanent priesthood, assures us of welcomeness and forgiveness forever. So yes, church leadership, incredibly important, a great gift, but, it, but the reality is you're probably going to be in a different community group in 10 years. You might be uh, serving in a different ministry and under a different person's leadership. Hiawatha Church will probably, by God's grace, bring on more elders and deacons. And so there will be times when church leadership will change. Or maybe, hopefully, this does not happen, but maybe there will be leaders that will let you down, that will hurt you, that will act out of selfishness or pride, and, and you will get hurt. But we can hang our hat on. We can put our hope in to know that Jesus' leadership will always be there. The great shepherd, the good shepherd, will always lead you, will always provide for you, protect you, care for you, ultimately, all this through the cross. So as we leave here, kind of three things to remember. The first one, just like Israel was reminded to do, trust in God's promises, especially when you don't want to, when you feel afraid, or when you are tempted to replace him with another false, powerless God. It can be pretty easy to trust in the gospel, to trust in God's promises that come through Jesus' death and resurrection. It can be a lot easier to do that when we're singing songs together with our church family and life's going pretty well and things like that. But just like Israel is going through lots of temptation coming out of oppression and exile. It's a lot harder to believe then, right? When, when chronic illness is not leaving you, when it seems like God's not answering your prayers, when you lose your job, when you have great conflict with loved ones, when anxiety and fear and doubt terrorize you and won't go away, it's a lot harder to remember and to believe and to trust in God's promises then. But that's when we need them the most, Right? So just like Zechariah is, is, is warning God's people and saying, you're going to be tempted to go back to Baal. You're going to be tempted to not worship God anymore. But instead, remember his promises. Remember his promises. Remember his promises. We need those people in our lives. That's why we preach the gospel every single week here at church. That's why we think it's so important to gather regularly with a community group so that we can remind ourselves of God's promises. So know the gospel deeply. And speak it into each other's lives. Especially when you're going through hard times. Especially when you're tempted to believe that, that power or influence or wealth or a new job or a new relationship or something bad in your life to leave, that, that that's what is going to really bring you true joy or, or, or happiness or fulfillment or peace. We need people in our lives that can say, no, that's actually not. Getting married is actually not going to really fix your, your, your biggest problem. Of, of, of loneliness or of wanting to be wanted by someone or having a spiritual or, or, or having a family. But in the gospel, you have a perfect husband. You have a spouse that loves you no matter what. And that's eternal. That's not going to end when you die. And you're saved into a spiritual family. And that's not going away. So even if your family might die or might get sick or might abandon you, your spiritual family never will. So as a church, 
Let us know the gospel deeply. Let us remind each other all the time of God's promises for us, especially promises that come through the gospel. Secondly, thank God for his perfect, powerful, and unending leadership in Christ. So do that right now. Thank God that he is a perfect leader, that he is a perfect authority, that his leadership and care and provision are perfect and loving. And when you come across, and you will, when you come across in this life bad leadership, whether it's, you know, government or, or, or boss or family or, or whatever it might be, people who are abusing their power, people who are using their authority to hurt people rather, to, rather than to empower people, and this is going to happen all the time in our lives, when you run up against horrible leadership, thank God that he's not like that. Thank God that his son, our ultimate shepherd, leads through sacrifice, leads through love, gives up his own life so that we may live. So thank God for his perfect leadership in our lives. And out of that, pray for the leadership that God has graciously given to us. Pray for your pastors, your overseers. Pray for the people that are leading you in big and small ways here within our church. Pray that they'd be close to God and that their leadership would reflect the gospel and would reflect Christ-like leadership. And then finally, out of this too, seriously seek leadership. At least pray about it. Ask God if he's calling you to, to lead more. Or maybe you don't, you're not leading at all right now and the Spirit's kind of moving in your heart right now and sparking something within you. All leaders lead through great weakness and being imperfect because we need to rely on the Holy Spirit. And so talk to any leader here at Hiawatha and we will tell you if there's great leadership that's coming out of us, it's, it's God's Spirit working through us. And so don't, don't be terrified to think, I could never do that or, or that or that. So I better just sit on the sidelines and kind of just pray for leadership and let them do the work of the ministry. But rather, Jesus gives his church leaders to equip the saints for all different kinds of ministry. So whether you're leading, you know, the nine-year-olds downstairs, whether you're leading a ministry here at church, whether you're, you're leading a small group Bible study, or whether God's calling you to lead a church, whether as a deacon or a community group leader or even an elder or church planter. Pray about that. And ask the Spirit to, to make it obvious in your life. And just know, like I said earlier, your pastors are here for you. Your community group leaders are here for you. We love you deeply, deeply. We don't just do this out of duty. We don't just do this because it's, it's a lot of fun. And some days it is a lot of fun. Some days it is heartbreaking. As we read your, your blue cards and see all the suffering and the pain that you're going through, our hearts break alongside you. We rejoice with you when we hear about God using you and addictions being stopped and marriages being saved and people believing the gospel. But it's know that your leaders love you really deeply. We love you really deeply. And we want to help you in this leadership. And so if you want help walking through, if you want help coaching or mentoring, if you want help just talking through what this might look like or you just want some opportunities to try your hand at leading something and if it fails, that's fine. We'll talk about it and try something new next time. We'll learn from it. But it's know that we highly value leadership here because it reflects our God. It reflects the gospel, servant leadership that lifts others up and makes them more like Christ. And then finally, put your hope today in God's ultimate, final, and eternal redemption. The redemption that comes through the good shepherd, that comes through the gospel. It's not going to come through law. It's not going to come through Israel, but it's going to come through 
the gospel. Put your hope in that. Right now, before your health starts to fail, before you lose your job, before you get betrayed by loved ones, before something really bad happens in your life, and then you lose all hope because you put your, your hope or you thought, well, the reason I know God loves me is because I have a great family. Or the reason I know God loves me is because my job's pretty good. And then you lose those things and you think God doesn't love you anymore. So today, our encouragement, one of our encouragements from uh, Zechariah 10, to put your hope in God's ultimate redemption, his eternal salvation that he gives us through the gospel. Let me pray. God, we thank you that you love us and that you have great, perfect leadership that loves us, that provides for us, that takes care of us, that protects us. Jesus, in, in, in the Gospels, it, it uh, describes uh, your son having pity on the people because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And thank you, God, that you did not leave us like that without a shepherd, but you sent your son as, as the ultimate shepherd to die in our place so that we can live. And we thank you that under your leadership, it's actually, there's the greatest amount of freedom in the whole world. It seems maybe counterintuitive or, or opposite to what the world says, but submitting to your leadership, living underneath your leadership is the most freeing, grace-filled uh, place that we can be. So we pray, God, you continue to uh, empower uh, your, your leaders here at Hiawatha to equip the saints for the work of the ministry and to help them grow and to mature and to more Christ-likeness. We thank you for uh, your great love for us, that it wasn't out of duty, but it was out of love that you exercised the greatest type of leadership, dying on the cross uh, for your enemies so that we could uh, be adopted uh, back into your family. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we respond with this song. Arise, strength of God, go before, lift me up as I wait.